Welcome back to The Birdie Bug Pod, episode 18. Here we are, we're back for another episode. Wanted to get one more in before we go on holiday. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, off to Croatia. So, it is good to be back. I'm pleased we've managed to stay on schedule for three episodes in a row. We're doing alright, aren't we? Yeah, not too bad. We are sticking with the common theme of a species-specific episode. I think... This is either three or four in a row now. Um, yeah, we're on a bit of a roll with that. Yeah, I think it's because we really enjoy researching mm. them. Um, and this time we're chatting all about the European eel, which is quite an interesting species and not one I knew too much about until I did research for my work. Yeah, we thought it was about time we did a sort of fishy thing. Yeah, we needed to make sure we include all of them. And of course they are fish, so yes. we'll, we'll talk all about that later. But to kick it off, I haven't got any catch-up, so... <laughs> Well, there's a surprise. No, our normal segment of what's Dad been up to? I haven't got much. Um, I've got little things like... It's always exciting for me because I've been now been taking pictures of birds for two, two and a half years. Well, that's only your like, dedicated bird. Yeah, yeah. You've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, actual you know, being totally obsessed yeah. by it for a couple of years. So it's always exciting still exciting when i photograph a bird for the first time and of course i've photographed a lot of birds now particularly uh, in my local area so you kind of then when you've done all of those in the local area you kind of just you know click and repeat yeah same group of species same they change species. throughout the year but you get the same yeah bunch. so very often you get the same bunch in the same kind of locality we're obviously in the southeast of england on the coast so i get a lot of uh, a lot of seabirds and the nature reserves on the estuaries and things like that, so wading birds. So it's always nice when you've been taking pictures to in the same place to, to have a little first. And I had a little first. First ever corn bunting. Which is exciting. And like a few of my firsts in the past, I didn't realise they were first till you get back and you start doing the editing. You know, you come back with a 400 pictures or whatever it is from the morning's shoot and then stick them all on the computer and then go through them and at the time I was picked up this corn bunting I was shooting uh, across a little meadow and I was picking up meadow pipits and skylarks and there was this little mix of birds coming onto posts and they were actually uh, feeding on the wing which was really great to see uh, just across the top of the grass and so anyway I was shooting my millions of pictures like I normally do and then as I was doing my editing, I looked at this picture and I thought, wow, that's not, not a skylark because the beak is all wrong and it's not a meadow pipit because the beak is all wrong. It's very finch-like. And Anyway, putting it through the bird ID, there we were, a little corn bunting. So, oh, cool. And that was really cool because they're not that common, actually. Where Bit of a shame you couldn't yeah. appreciate it in the moment. Yes, it would have been better if I could have just gone, oh, there's a corn bunting, but, you know, you can't. Can't, can't recognise them all all the time, you know. So you sent um, me a nice photo of a yellow hammer as well, didn't you? Lovely yellow hammer, absolutely work. startling colour that one was as well. It was so vibrant. That yeah, yellow. they are lovely. So, corn bunting first. Um, what else have I got to catch up on? Not a lot really. I've just been. Could we go on away to Croatia at the end of the week for? 10 days which i'm really excited about i still about. need to have a look at what sort of critters yeah, I can and find i've been out looking there. i've been looking at the kind of birds that i will maybe see well i'll see obviously a lot of the same ones that we see here from blue tits to sparrows to dunnocks to blackbirds there's obviously all of those that you'll see in europe the same as you will here but there are lots that you don't get here squacko herons which are amazing golden eagles of course we get here but obviously mostly in scotland um and they have quite a few of them there. Scops owls. Oh, they're, see, they're beautiful. Which are absolutely stunning. And They're the ones that look like they're wearing glasses, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, so um, they're quite common out there. That's not to say I'll get to see them, but there's the opportunity to see a whole host of different species, which is exciting me enormously, aside from the beer, the sunshine, and reading a book. And the thunderstorms. And the forecasted... <laughs> thunderstorms while the uk is going to be in the heat wave i think we're going to have thunderstorms yeah. so that should be fun i mean that for once i might have some catch-up about the insects that i get to photograph yeah. in croatia yeah so they'll there should be a lot maybe we'll do an episode on the wildlife we, we see depending on how yeah. much we see yeah that'd be good so i haven't got i haven't got anything else apart from i've been deliberating going mirrorless yet again i'm using a nikon d500 dslr 
from 2015 uh, when that first came out and I've been watching non-stop YouTube videos and reading reviews about the Nikon Z8 which has just come out it's very expensive I can't afford it but I want it you don't need both kidneys you'll be um, fine and um, the only other thing I wanted to mention which was there's some things that always break my heart there's a there's a um, nature reserve RSPB nature reserve called Carimony in Scotland and there's a wildfire that's ripped through it and it's absolutely heartbreaking 50% of the nature reserve has been lost and um, they're asking for however small donations for that to help uh, fund the not only the recovery of it because there's been decades of work on that nature reserve that have just been lost overnight on this fire but to try and uh, fund the recovery of it and also the firefighters and still um, fighting this fire so you can find all that information out on the uh, RSPB website and if you can do a small donation I did one yesterday it was 20 quid I can't afford it any more than anybody else but when you see that kind of thing, it's absolutely heartbreaking, and these people are doing so much work trying to uh, save it. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, that's a good thing um, to point people to. Yeah. So um, on that that note, should um, we move into the wonderful world of eels? The wonderful world of eels. I learned so much about eels, and I got to be honest, I didn't know very no, much I mean, about eels at all. I think we're probably both a bit guilty of not knowing as much about our native fish. Compared Definitely. to our other wildlife, uh, they're a lot. They're quite easy to overlook because yeah. you don't see them. Uh, I, as obviously you know, I, I did a post for the Rivers Trust on World Eel Day and also World Fish Migration Day, yeah. uh, which I focused on European eels, and that's where I learned about them. So when we're looking at an episode idea, I was like, let's learn more about eels. Cause yeah, fascinating. I, honestly, I didn't realise cool. how fascinating they are. And again, they're one of those... They're one of those um, animals that people go, ugh, slimy, horrible yeah, eels. They're much maligned and much uh, unappreciated, I yeah. think. And so they look quite snake-like. Most people have an idea in their head of what an eel looks like, but they are, of course, a fish. Um, and there are actually about 800 species of eel around the world. Um, I think the moray eel is particularly famous just because of its massive jaws. But we're chatting about the European eel, yeah. or anguilla anguilla. Um, what's particularly cool about them is that they are catadromous, which I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which means that they live in fresh water, but they go into salt water to spawn. And so any animal that can sort of move between fresh and salt water has to have quite a variety of adaptations because it's quite a, a shock to the system. Yes, we all think of salmon doing that, yeah. don't we? And um, so, yeah, salmon obviously do the same yeah. thing, but in reverse because they yeah. come into fresh water to spawn. Yeah. Um, and so I've got quite a lot of information about their rather remarkable migration. It is it is one of nature's unbelievable migrations. But before actually. I kick into their cool life cycle, I don't know if you've, you want you got any little factoids you want to throw in before I delve into the migration. Oh, I've got a ton of facts which could hold you up actually. Right, well, quickly, how big do they get? Well, they get between sixty to eighty centimeters. Rarely more than about a meter, but there has been uh, there has been recorded eels up to one and a half two meters but rarely do they get above a meter in length and how long do they live they they live quite a long time don't they have you got that yeah uh i haven't is it 15 20 years? i've got they, they can live sort of five to 20 years yeah they there is and this will I'll, I'll touch on this with the migration there is a thought that if they were landlocked meaning that they couldn't return to sea to to migrate uh they could potentially live up to 100 years so they are wow. very long-lived potentially very long-lived animals yeah one, one of the interesting facts that um that i did find out about was that and i'm not sure they've even done it yet but no one's ever filmed uh eels mating yes they're, they're, and i don't not... know whether that's still the case yeah, but no, they, not, in I... fact they, they they weren't even sure how they reproduce because they don't seem to have any reproductive organs that are visible yeah or... i've got some information yeah on that. so that was a that was really interesting actually but they also have four nostrils um, I'm not. I don't have Do any. know why they have four Other than the fact it's quite cool that they've got four nostrils. They're actually, I think, quite uh, cute-looking animals. I think they're quite cool. They've got quite cheeky-looking faces. Um, oh, okay. So I, I will post a picture when, when we publish this. Um, I think they're quite nice-looking fish. 
Whereas, like you say, people yeah, probably actually, think of them as being... There's another interesting fact there. Historically, the eel constituted 50% of the total freshwater fish biomass in Europe. That's, that doesn't that's extraordinary. Me, actually. It's not the case now, which we'll talk about yeah, a bit as, later on. As always, we've picked a species that uh, is in decline and needs a bit of help so that we can talk about why they're interesting, why they've declined and yeah. the work being done. Um, I thought it was interesting, too, that they can, um, although they are a fish, they can actually travel short uh, distances across land. Yes. They often they go across grassland and wetlands, wetlands to, to get into the next uh, part of their journey. Or yeah. another, another stream. So, so what, I'll, uh, let's hop into their cool little life cycle. Yeah, you, you, you kick into that because it, uh, it is fascinating. So we'll start off from their journey as an egg. So they, they hatch from little spherical eggs way, way in the distance or far away from us in the Sargasso Sea in the Western Atlantic Ocean. But if you think of Bermuda, it's over that way. Uh, so it's about six and a half thousand kilometres yeah. away from where we are. And the journey actually starts as an egg. So the egg will, will float it just on sea currents, essentially. And during that time, they will hatch into little larvae called leptocephali. Leptocephali. Not sure how you want to say it. They're about five minutes. I'm glad you said long. it because I didn't want to say that one. Um, and essentially, this journey that they're embarking on from egg to where they um, come to the UK can take one to two years. And so they, they hatch in the sea currents into these little larvae and can just essentially continue floating along on their way to Europe. There's not actually any documented. Uh, information on whether or not these larvae, what they feed on, like what these larvae consume, it probably like plankton or something, but yeah. it's never actually been been documented. And so along their sort of three hundred day migration, um, they would have grown into what's called a glass eel. So it's another development stage before they've even reached our shores. And these are slightly bigger, but still just very small, sort of translucent looking eels. Um, once they reach the European continental shelf and sort of the, the our estuaries, they will develop into another life stage known as elvers. And it's at this life stage that they start spreading into our estuaries and essentially looking for a habitat to live and develop in. They then a little bit quick, more quickly uh, develop into a yellow eel. And this is the main part of their life. So yellow eels are essentially just immature adults. They are not sexually... Yeah developed they can't breed but they they look very much like a fully formed eel at this point and this is definitely the stage that lasts uh the longest they can actually spend like i said their lifespan is five to twenty years they can spend five to twenty years in this life stage uh, and they will spread up f- through our estuaries into our rivers and the tributaries and essentially find a nice habitat feed on invertebrates other fish yeah mollusks crustacean all of yeah, that yeah pretty of much stuff. anything that's and scavenge as well don't they yeah, they, yeah. they'll scavenge they'll eat pretty much anything that yeah. they they can and so this is the stage that if you were if you're a fisherman or if you were to see an eel in our rivers uh it would be a yellow eel and they've got a yellowy tint to their yeah. their underbelly and like i said that's where that's how they spend most of their life now, just before they make their return journey back to the Sargasso Sea to spawn, they develop into their final stage, which is known as a silver eel, which is just a mature adult. What's quite interesting is that what is called silvering, and it's the process of becoming silver, funnily enough, is actually really important. And it, it comes with, people might think it's just the development of the sexual organs for reproduction that actually comes with really important anatomical changes that allow them to go from fresh water to salt water yeah, I was fascinated and make that, that migration it's things like um higher production of cortisol which is really important for mobilizing energy we always think of it as a stress hormone but it's an important thing for energy use for them to make that six and a half thousand kilometer journey back uh they also produce a steroid now i'm going to butcher this but it's called 11 keto sto keto stosterone right so i'm not going to say it again <laughs> which is again part of silvering and it actually is what prepares a variety of internal structural changes for salt water um and so it's again this process of silvering is really important to make sure yeah. they can actually go back into yeah. salt water um, and as I said at the beginning, that process is catadromous, meaning yeah. they can live in both salt and fresh water. 
it's i think these migrations and you can look at salmon and we were tempted to do like the salmon migration and it's the one that people normally focus on wild isles documentary did a lot on yes. salmon and i think it, it goes without saying that people always look at birds and the insane migrations they do and forget some of the incredible fish migrations and i think this you know six and a half thousand kilometer migration from fresh into salt or salt into fresh by a fish across these seas has to be one of the most just impressive feats of nature. Yeah, and they were they were speculating on how they actually find their way and they were talking about obviously magnetic north and the gulf stream and yeah. all of those um those natural phenomenon that actually help them do that it helps them um, on the way yeah. to us they, yeah. they float on yeah. these streams like going back must be yeah harder i found it fascinating that that change that you're talking about that metamorphosis that they Silvering. go through there's all sorts of things that happen their pectoral fins widen their digestive tract shuts down so that they don't have to feed and yeah. eat their eyes grow up to 10 times their original size so that they can see for their journey back and their muscle mass increases so they do so this big bulk just yeah they do the this incredible change that aids the eel on its journey back to the Sargasso Sea, which, as you said, is a, it's a, long, is way. a long way away. And what's, what is particularly interesting is, say, it's, it's down as one of the most impressive migrations, yeah. and yet we don't actually know very much about it. No silver eels, so adult eels, have ever been caught in open ocean. So from the time that they leave, we'd obviously talk about UK uh as where we live you get them you get these eels in the thames estuary and through a lot of our rivers but they're also in europe as well hence the name but from them leaving the european continental shelf all the way back to the sargasso sea no one's ever caught one out in open ocean so you've got these eels making an incredible journey but they're not being found no um, it's, it's one of it's, it's one of nature's mysteries yeah, as well people, isn't we're, it? we're not really clear whether spawning takes place just one time at, during the year or whether it's over an extended period not too sure how long it takes for them to leave the european shelf to make it yeah. to their spawning ground again don't even know how many like as a percentage leave and actually make it to spawn so from them leaving to spawning, so there's so much that's not known about what happens to them on this journey. Which in itself is quite interesting because we think now, here we are in 2023, and we think we not know it all, but there's been so much, uh, you know, and so many animal documentaries, so much study, yeah. so much research on we pretty track, much all of the animal we track kingdom. birds doing yeah. all their migrations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and things this like is that. one of those, one of the, f- not few, but there's one of the animals that we still know very little yeah. about and yet it's it's such a, a fascinating journey um, yeah. by just an incredible fish the, the life that they go through from being a, a little le- lectocephaly little larva to a glass eel to an elver to a yellow eel to a silver eel it's just such a yeah such an interesting and quite a complex life i reckon that fewer than one in 500 eel larvae are thought to survive the long journey yeah back. Well, it's, it's hardly surprising when you think yeah. of everything in the sea that's eating and yeah all the things that could go yeah. wrong um so that's their rather interesting life cycle yeah say so most of their life is spent as an immature male and, and if you ever do come across one or lucky enough to spot one that is that is how you would see them um don't know whether you want to then sandwich that section with some more little facts or folklore well, I've got which you always like to do fascinating history about eels because going back to particularly medieval time um and this was a big section of my historical knowledge about the medieval times i didn't know is that eels were were a huge commodity not only were they one of the most eaten meats uh in the medieval times but they were so important and and you, it's been documented in things like the Doomsday Book. They were actually used as payment for rents. Oh, blimey. They used And it's been, I mean, what have I got here? In the Doomsday Book, rents are frequently recorded in quantities of eels. So what they did is they, they, um, they skewered eels to dry them out. They skewered them on sticks, and these sticks became... Like a quantities currency. of currency so for example a cheap rent might be two sticks per month of eels um some were far greater than that larger rents could cost a thousand sticks that's a lot of um eels. and there was a there was a, a 
a, a guy called John Wyatt Greenley, who studied medieval studies and did a PhD in it at Cornell. And um, it was quite fascinating because he did all of this, uh, this a, a whole interactive map of eel rents paid between the 10th and 17th century. It was a massive PhD that he did. And he did a medieval converter to calculate what eel rents would mean in today's um, dollars. He, it was done in dollars. He was American, this guy. And he estimated at one point that an Amazon Prime membership, for example, would have cost between 150 to 300 eels. <laughs> That's so weird. Which is incredible. So they were, a, they were a massive thing and they were eaten. They were so beloved and they, was, they were eaten in so many different ways. They were smoked, dried, stuffed, diced in stews, eel pie. Of course, you know, jelly deals. Jelly deals in yeah, pubs. Yeah, we'll in, talk about why in, they've declined. <laughs> in London, was yeah. were obviously a huge thing. And cheap um, as well. Which and is... cheap. So, um, the English made wallets, clothes, wedding bands out of eel skin. Medieval medicines uh, suggested snorting eel skin to stop bloody noses. A remedy for perking up a tired horse, apparently, was a rather unsavoury use of the eel. <laughs> I'll leave that to your imagination. Um, and Shakespeare wrote about them. So, you know, they were culturally massively very important. important. They were eel ships coming into London um, because they were such an important commodity. And actually, they still are in some ways. And we'll talk about that, which sort of coincides with their reason for their decline, decline even, even today. Um, and there were some, uh, just to finish off on all those little things, there were quite a few little uh, little legends around um, eels. For example, um, the ancient Egypt, Egyptians believed that eels were produced by the sun warming the Nile. Oh, that's quite cool. Which I thought was quite cool. Um, as late as the 1860s, uh, the Scots had a belief that they began their lives as beetles. Um, that's weird. I wonder how some that... Some believed that eels were born of sea foam. That one makes more sense. I can't see the beetle... Like where the connection is between beetle and eel. No, I can't see that one either. I quite like the horsehair one. Yeah, and then, yes, in the English countryside, um, uh, again, in medieval times, there was a theory that eels were born when hairs from horses' tails fell in the rivers. Yeah, I like that one. That's quite Um, cool. And you can kind of see that one. That one makes more sense than beetles. So so there were lots of... um, there are lots of little legends around eels. Clearly, the subject but, of a lot of thought. But I didn't realise just how important they were as a as a, a food source well, and a currency and a currency. Yeah, which is um, fascinating. Which is incredible. Yeah. So it's just quite a little a little fish that we can very easily overlook, and yet it's been yeah. so important for so important for a long they, time. They, um, medieval families had crests that included eels yeah in their i think designs. i've seen those i mean we could probably sit here and do a whole episode just on facts about eels and yes not even it touch is, on it their is um, population issues yeah it is it is uh really interesting and i say not something that i and as always I we about. will stick a bunch of links in the show notes so if people want to go and learn even more about yeah. eels yeah uh, we'll, we'll provide some cool resources like for example the um i think it was i think it was thames rivers trust or thames conservation uh, society have a really nice animated video of the life cycle. Oh, I think that might like have been that. the London. Uh, oh, it might be the Zoological Society of London. They have yeah, one something as well. like that. Yeah, well, I've got that further down in my notes. So, we'll do, uh, but on that, that, unless there's anything else, I'm happy. Do you want to move on to the slightly less cheerful side of the podcast on their decline? Yes, so which is dramatic, staggering. staggering. They were. And and this is probably goes without saying, considering the fact that they were currency at one point and used for so many things. They were one of the most common fish in our yeah. waters. But since the 1970s, so relatively recent when you think that we're looking back at, with all your facts to the medieval times, yeah. the 1970s is comparatively quite recent. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The number of eels reaching Europe, so this is not actually within our waters, but making the, the migration has declined by 90 to 97%. Yeah. And then within our waters, the decline, I didn't find a percentage for, but they are critically endangered. I've got a 98% decline since 1980 is what I've got. Okay. I mean, it it would coincide with those not making it to our our waters. Um, So there are quite a few reasons. And with it being a fish rather than a terrestrial animal, uh, it means we get the opportunity to talk about some slightly different issues. Some are the same, but there are some slightly different ones. Overfishing is one of the biggest ones so i've got 
that around 5,500 tonnes of eels are produced by aquaculture, so in fish farms across Europe, every year, and more than 1,000 tonnes of wild eels are caught every yeah. year. So we we may have fished them very heavily in the medieval times, but the populations were going to be far lower and our fishing methods were far less yeah, definitely, um, yeah. efficient. And so we've sort of just cleared them from our waters. Where jellied eel used to be a cheap, readily available thing that you could pick up in London, a lot of eel dishes are now almost considered delicacy because they are so rare. Oh, especially in the UK, the production in aquaculture is a lot more common in yeah. Europe uh, rather than here. The other one which is people often don't know about, and I don't think I would have known about it if it wasn't for the work at the Rivers Trust, is barriers to migration. Yes, I've got that, the uh, the weirs and dams. And, weirs and dams, the yeah. things that break up our river systems so they're no longer a nice continual passage. It just blocks their sort of migration yeah. pathways, doesn't it? And so it's it's this is a problem for all migratory uh, fish. It causes other problems as well, but specifically for migration. It's, it's one of the other things that people often focus on with salmon. Yeah. And, and so it is just the presence of whether it's hydroelectric power, which obviously can be good in some cases, uh, but also comes with this downside or other reasons to have dams or weirs. Yeah. Water um, pumping stations yeah. is another one. Yeah. So anything that ends up sort of blocking a nice passage. If you think uh, not only leaving uh, the UK to go back and sport, but trying to get up our rivers to find suitable habitat to grow in, you know, they, they, they want to reach our estuaries move up the rivers and spread to find yeah. nice habitats they're typically quite solitary animals you you do sometimes find rivers with a few of them but they're not like a schooling fish they typically live alone so they really want to sort of spread through our waterways it's and- actually i read um uh, something that arundel wetland center was doing about eels and they, they've got eels in the reed beds there oh have they yeah, apparently so yeah. well we had them in the little nature reserve near me um which is actually like a it's a pond but it's fed by like a little stream there were eels there because during the drought last year, the people who unofficially, they're not, it's not like their job, they're, they're retired, but look after the nature reserve, were running buckets of water from the stream to the pond because it dried out so much, eels were just oh, drying. Okay. And I think there was only three, right. but they lost two of them because they literally just dried out because the pond vanished. Well, the, 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 drought. The, the WWT are one of the organisations, again, which we'll talk about a little bit further down the line, that are doing a, 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 lot, a lot of work, of work in yeah. that respect. So and Yeah, obviously we'll chat about yeah. what's being done. Um but I would not have expected to have eels in my little local pond, no, essentially. No, absolutely. So, yeah, barriers to migration is another huge one. The the, the two biggest ones being overfishing and, and these barriers. But there are other issues. Um, one being... Now, this isn't... It's a bit like what we talked about with the migration of the swift. This hasn't necessarily been heavily researched or studied, but it is thought, and, and relatively um, logically so, that as climate changes, we are seeing changes in a lot of the sea and ocean streams so whether it's the gulf stream yeah the atlantic oscillation or the north atlantic drift we are seeing just as the temperature and pressures and everything changes as the climate changes those sea currents are being altered but if you think specifically from an eel's point of view whereas you've got adult salmon swimming towards the uk to come and spawn for the starting life or the starting uh, life stage of an eel where they just float they're not even swimming they are just floating and completely dependent on these currents bringing them along their journey any shifts or or changes in those currents can be and set them way off course yeah and so i say it's not something that's heavily studied or haven't got you know it's shifted by this many degrees but it is thought that as the climate changes and these currents are altered that that will impact if you think that it's what 90 to 97 percent decline in eels reaching europe yeah something is happening from hatching to getting here so that would potentially uh, explain it we've also got a very very common theme for all of our podcasts the normal culprits pollution yeah so that can be anything from yeah you know, we've we've spoken about sewage in our rivers chemicals in our rivers whether it's pesticides whether it's from farms or building or whatever a particularly one uh piece of research suggests that polychlorinated biphenyl or pcb pollution uh is thought to contribute to eel issues specifically um i think those are the main uh 
contenders or, or, or issues. Well, you've you've got you have got the the other ones as well, such as uh, wetland reclamation. Of yeah, changes of land, changes use. of land usage that's obviously uh, altering their habitat and um, and destroying their habitat that they thrive in. Yeah. So and all of those ones that we've talked about so many times about habitats being lost um, and are not looked after. And yeah. I, I touched on it very briefly, obviously, with what happened at my local pond. But we are in the UK specifically, but also across Europe, we're seeing a lot hotter summers. We had a big drought last year in 2022. We're already in preparation for another very, very dry summer. And like I said, the local pond lost two eels because it dried out. And so there was yeah. nowhere for them to go. And so as we see our river levels just drop massively, they risk losing habitat and drying out over summer. So yeah. that's another part of the climate change is we are seeing very, very hot, dry summers. And it, if you look at what happened to our rivers last year, in if they are in if they are in ponds or if, if a section of a pond or, or a lake gets isolated and there's nowhere for them to yes. to go, you could see that contributing yeah. to eel mortality. Yeah, definitely. And then then the other slightly disturbing one is uh, is wildlife trafficking is yes. is one of the biggest um, problems as well. In fact, I've got here that illegal trade of um, European eels it's one of the most the world's most smuggled animals apparently oh that is interesting yeah. I didn't have that down and it's an illegal trade worth of more than three billion dollars a year so and they've still... estimated that more than 300 million glass eels are smuggled from Europe to Asia each year it, it's um it's a huge problem they're obviously still culturally very important yeah very important obviously out in yeah, Asia. I mean, in not to say any more than that. Yeah, obviously we said that they're critically endangered. They're on they're on the uh, all all the lists. And in 2010, uh, Greenpeace International added the European eel to its seafood red list, which yeah. is supposed to. I'll go on to this in a minute. Uh, put limits on how much you can fish or or capture uh, eels. But, yes, there was some regulation that they're going to try and implement in this country about um, fish farms as well. Yeah. Um, because actually that was the other thing I didn't mention uh, because I couldn't find too many stats about how much it impacts them, but they are particularly susceptible to quite a variety of intestinal parasites. Oh, yes, I've got that, a nematode worm parasite. Yeah. I did, and I did, it says it, I've got a line here that says, on top of everything else, yeah, they do <laughs> it have appears that these benign, benighted animals are increasingly being stricken by a nematode worm parasite. Well, what made me think of it is you obviously mentioned fish farms, and fish farms are typically... Yeah hotbeds for parasites just because yeah. you've got so many fish living in such a small area and then if any do get released which or escape which again happens quite frequently in, in fish farms they can then take the parasites into the wild population so that is another issue when it comes to fish farming is the they do become breeding zones for, for parasites yeah. and eels are quite susceptible to them anyway so we We've sort of established that they they've declined a lot, and we, we've we sort of identified the main reasons behind that. Yes, they've got they've got they got a lot missiles being fired at yeah. them from all sides. They've got a lot they? to contend with on top yeah. of their insane journey. Yeah. But as always, and, and we always this is the the nicer part of the podcast. There's a lot of work being done to help them by a lot of very cool, very dedicated organisations. There is there is, and but you know, one of the things that came out of that part of the research about. Uh, organizations that are trying to help the european eel um it's just how difficult that it is, is it is hard and um, because of its the migratory nature yeah. of its, it's life also, cycle it's it means they're exposed to all of those yeah natural and human pressures at local but at global scale yeah there's as only well. so much you can do for so, your local population it's so difficult especially if you think that one of the problems is them not reaching us yeah. so it doesn't matter how yeah, exactly, perfect yeah. our rivers are if they can't make it here um but it doesn't change the fact that people are obviously working hard um, and yes, that organisation I was trying to um, uh, state earlier on was the Zoological Society of London. Yeah, that's what I said, yeah, yeah, ZSL. Which is what you said, yeah. So, as we said, one of the main issues for them, especially within our rivers, are barriers to migration. Yeah. And so one of the biggest things that organisations are doing are removing barriers and also mapping where these barriers are. So mapping where we need to fix our uh, rivers. And so the, the cool project that I wanted to chat about was the Thames Catchment Community Eels Project. 
Now, this includes uh, quite a few partners at Zoological Society of yeah. London, Thames 21, who are a Rivers Trust, Action for River Kennet, who are a Rivers Trust, yeah. Thames Rivers Trust, and South East Rivers Trust. So there are you getting a little plug in there for little plug for the, for the work <laughs> being done by our Rivers Trust movement. No um, shame in that, mate. No, it's, it's, it's just this very cool project. It actually finished being delivered in 2020, I, I believe. Um, and essentially what it did, and we always like talking about citizen science, is it trained volunteers and citizen scientists, I think there was 97 of them, to map barriers in the Mole, the Kennet, the Pang, the Ravensbourne and the Brent. And so essentially you had these volunteers walking along. Sorry, we couldn't hear a dog barking, yeah, which got, is going to come across in this pod, yeah. I think. Um, you've got volunteers essentially walking along and, and identifying areas or, or problems in, in our rivers that might need to be removed or to each you don't often or don't always rather actually remove a, uh, something like a, a weir or a um, dam you can put in a fish pass yes fish pass yeah. and it's essentially almost like a little slide yeah i read that, about those that those, lets are, those them are great get past funny enough the the barrier the the project did a lot of other things as well including working in 22 schools with children groups and working with about 2,000 500 kids teach them about eels and rivers and, and things like that to get people you know, passionate about this and, and people aware of why it's important to look after your local river and and again it's a these issues same with salmon and and same with pollution in rivers or, or oceans they're very easily overlooked because yeah. you can't necessarily it's not like looking and seeing a pile of rubbish in a woodland yeah you can sometimes miss what's happening and so the project did quite a lot of education work as well but it was quite a nice little collaboration across the Thames catchment to try and yeah. Map. And as always, I think I don't think I've got the name of it. I think there was a whether it was a uh, an app or an online system where you could look at a map and it would show you where all the barriers oh, okay. and, and That's things quite are. Cool. So it's a bit like Swift Mapper, but for eels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, as I said, the uh, the WWT Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust are doing a lot, um, and they're in 2018 they began to microchip eels. Yeah. Um, to track their movements um and they also uh they're doing a lot of work down in a um one of their nature reserves in somerset which is steart marshes and they're focusing quite a lot on those uh those fish passes that you talked about yeah they're trying to create effective um, ones effective ones in their nature reserves and access points one of them was a 400 meter tunnel built in victorian times that sort of got clogged up and when the tide was really low the eels couldn't get in there so they've created little almost like little plastic guttering to help yeah. them slide into this access tunnel to... yeah because some of them some of the fish passes are literally this is a quite a niche reference or an analogy if you have been kayaking sometimes you get on like a dam or a weir like yeah. a little thing where you essentially just slide yeah. your kayak down and it's almost like that for fish it gives them just a a quick way of of navigating because on top of obviously mapping and these fish passes, dam removal or weir removal is a huge thing. Yes, of course. Yeah. And another little plug, the Rivers Trust do a lot of dam removal. So, And it's actually not just the Rivers Trust. There's a an organisation called, oh, I've, I've forgotten, it's the European Dam Coalition. Let's go with that. I'll put it, if I got that wrong, I'll put it in the show notes. And there was a recent report in the newspapers about how many dams have been removed across all of Europe and across the UK. I think there was 29 in the UK and over 300 across Europe. And it's a whole collaboration from organisations across all of Europe, including Rivers Trust and, and, and others, to try and reopen our rivers. And they actually do dam removal awards. Oh, really? So um, South Cumbria Rivers Trust were up for the Balston Weir removal. And they didn't they didn't win, but they were nominated as a potential dam removal of the year. What well, a fantastic so, competition! Yes, yeah, there was a whole there was a conference called the European yeah. Dam Removal Conference, and it was a it was all about doing just how sympathetically that they they removed them. So it was about like the scale of the project, yeah. the benefits and how of they, the project. Yeah, how it, they yeah. tidy up after removing yeah, exactly. them. Yeah, exactly. So it was literally everything from start to wow. finish, and the importance of that particular yeah. one. And the the there was a whole conference and of people talking about why it's so important to remove dams, how we can because sometimes they're important. You've got hydroelectric power, how we can make sure it's not impact. Yeah. So there was a whole conference just on removing barriers. Fantastic. And they have awards and and all sorts. So there's and again not something I ever knew was going on yeah. that 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 was a thing. But it's it's massive. Well, you certainly Europe don't never read about it in the papers. No, until you? recently yeah. that yeah. that popped up because yeah. of. They they did the stats and say over three hundred dams across Europe have been yeah. taken down. So there's a lot of work being done to try and remove 
or adapt these barriers. See, this is why I think newspapers have got it all wrong because they should be putting this kind of stuff in newspapers, yeah. good news stories about well, conservation and yeah. wildlife. Um, yeah, there are. I suppose it doesn't sell newspapers, does it? No, they do pop up every now and then. Yeah. Um, there was actually a really cool article, I can't remember in which newspaper, called uh, A New Life for London's Lost Rivers, which yeah. is a really interesting. Apparently, it's more paper. important to talk about Philip Schofield yeah. and, and um, Prince Harry. <laughs> but there you go. So, barrier removal and. I might mapping. take that bit out. <laughs> We're not political. We're not political here. Um, barrier removal and mapping are two of the biggest things people are doing. Um, like you mentioned, there's the tagging of eels. Yeah. We've obviously spoken quite a bit about the fact that a lot of their life is unknown. And so if we can tag adults returning to Sargasso Sea... Yeah, it's huge data, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, if we can start understanding that journey better, it would, like you said, it's hard to help them at a local level when they've got the international stuff. Yeah. And so if we can have a better understanding of that journey, you can sort of pick out where the problems might be. Like, are they having issues... As they hit this part of the journey, or is it? Is yeah. there lots going on just as they reach Europe, for example? So it's it's quite similar in that respect to migratory birds. Once yes. they've left here, the journey back to Southern Sahara, you know, where they have to in, encounter so many obstacles yeah. along the way, it's quite hard to determine why they haven't come back in so yeah. many numbers. So it, it, that data is so it's important because really important, you might think, oh, oh swift population's gone down is it because of the uk insect population's yeah. gone down yes probably but also maybe at some point over europe there's been a huge drought and there's no food exactly or yeah. something along those yeah. lines and so if you don't have that data you won't be able to identify the causes and of that's the why it's so fantastic when they manage to tag birds and get all of that information and uh, now, this microchipping now of eels is is starting to fill in those gaps um yeah you know to, at is, some level it's very it's, it's one of those things that if it wasn't such a dire situation it would just be very fascinating research just to for the simple fact of knowing yeah more about their lives well it, it's something I the decline was is so widespread that, that there has been a european commission uh developed to to for a, an eel recovery plan yeah um i don't know if you've got any information on that but that's quite a big thing actually yeah, that's is. going on and in fact in 2018 um, there's a number of measures actually uh, three month fishing closures have been introduced at European level um, to try and help the eel stocks they also, there was a, a ban in 2010 uh, they decided not to allow trade of European eels outside the European, European Union yeah. so that's why it's now an illegal trade going on um, it used to be a trade that you could trade eels across the world and now you can't yeah so, and um, there's always people operating illegally yeah. but if you can try and reduce people doing legally and you'll yeah. even see for example when we do this research you often stumble across pages by the canal rivers and rivers trust not rivers trust but they're called the canal and rivers trust yeah. um and they often have quite a lot of information there for fishermen and there's even notes saying you shouldn't be because normally they for each fish they'll be like oh how to catch this fish uh, where to fish yeah. for what sort of bait etc there is even notes saying lots of nice information about eels and a little note saying endangered yeah. you shouldn't be catching this fish so they, you also have organizations trying to spread the awareness at a more local level they're not going to be the biggest issues you've got the big when you've got big uh, fishing industry the local fishermen aren't going to be, or the hobbyists aren't going to be the main factor, but it's still important. Yeah, you've got, got awareness as well, yeah, isn't it? If you've got a small population just hanging on, yeah. you don't want it being attacked by a just your friendly fisherman. Yeah, so at least a, from a on a on a political level, they they yeah, there is awareness. They have reached um, them, that level. Yeah, I think in one of the articles about these regulations and and the fact that they're really hard to enforce. Yeah, uh, but and I can't remember the person who I'm quoting. But he was the person who was fighting for these regulations. And I've completely forgotten about whether he was a researcher, an academic or whatever. He said, there is no such thing as sustainable eel now. He said, if there was sustainable eel for people to eat, he would recommend it because by all accounts, it's probably quite tasty. But he said, there is no such thing as sustainable eel because there aren't enough left. You can't fish something sustainably when they're hanging on for yeah. dear life. He said, we are not eating the last remaining pandas. We shouldn't be eating yeah. the last remaining eels. A 98% decline is pretty, yeah, so says it all, doesn't it, it's, really? It's just one of those things to keep out, keep an eye on because you'll often see on, whether it's seafood or other products, you'll see sustainably fished. Yeah 
tuna yeah. or whatever he very clearly just was like there is no sustainable eel yeah so you it's not something that can be marketed as oh maybe we just need to reduce no they need some time to recover now yeah um well we've just got to hope that all of these regulations that are coming in and are already in um you know and this again this awareness that is being created about the the dire situation that eels are in um that all of these organizations will make a difference yeah. and I'll, I'll brush through the last couple of things so i think we've, this might end up being quite a long episode they're just very interesting yeah. species um the other thing we've we've spoken about tagging them to understand the migration there's actually research being taken to try and understand the feeding habits of the younger stages of right. eels because, like I said, a lot of the problem is they're not making it here. So is it that their food sources aren't yeah. available? Like, why aren't they succeed, uh, succeeding in their journey? And the research is still quite new, but they're looking. it's looking like the early life stages eat, obviously, a lot of plankton. But interestingly, also microscopic jellyfish make oh, okay. up a big part of their oh, diet. Oh, I didn't know that. Which is quite cool. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's just the more understanding we have of their biology and their life, the easier it is to identify where they might be struggling um they have actually we've said reducing fishing they are being removed from a lot of menus yeah probably because it's hard to I get mean, it's but... so serious the situation yeah. is so serious they will be extinct unless we do something about it they'll be extinct very soon yeah actually they and won't then exist. the other the last point i had for conservation which i could very easily do another shameless plug but it's not just uh the river trust it's all sorts of organizations from wwt to wildlife trusts to marine conservation yeah. society is just trying to clean up our oceans and our rivers because if they do make it here that they don't want to swim into polluted seas yeah. or sewage filled rivers or filled with a variety of pesticides so the other important thing is making sure that our coastline and our inland waters are full of a healthy habitat so that well again recently you know obviously there's now the water companies have come out and said yes we've got to spend money it's, and it's yes, been a very big political been a huge political thing now. the water companies are promising to spend 14 billion on on cleaning yeah, up our restoration rivers and um, putting the infrastructure in so that when that that uh excess water isn't and sewage isn't just pumped into the rivers so yeah we've it, just it's... got to hope that they they you know keep their promises yeah, but, but and but it's going to be as ever it'll take time yeah even these changes aside, will take time obviously i haven't been in this job long enough to look back and say what it was like five ten years yeah. ago but within the organization it's just the fact that these uh, issues, whether it's sewage or chemicals or whatever it is in our rivers, has never before hit the news like it does now. Like it would always, it's always been a problem, but it was never front page news for a week when new research came out or the what we're going to do with our rivers and seas has never been a swing part of a political party. No, I was going to say it's almost like a political yeah. weapon. The Lib Dems are using yeah. it as a big yeah. pull, yeah. and it's never had such influence over both the public and, yeah. and politics. And so, Isn't that a good thing. Yeah, so it's, we can look and say, oh, will they actually do their promise? It's, it's hard to say, but the awareness at the moment yeah. is so much higher than it's ever been. Because you see, like surfers against sewage, the pro, the floating protests and out to do with more to do with the seas rather than the rivers it's, it's always hitting big news big papers yeah. front page big social media tagging uh like trend uh trending on twitter for example and so it's just the fact that the situation's bad but it's great to see how much people care definitely and it, it's become such an important issue rather than something that's just sort of happening in the background so i think that's another a big positive that we have to take is the fact that people really do care. It's a huge positive, and and I think that the scale of understanding how much people care is yeah, and brilliant. people shouting is what gets yeah. and it's it's done. not it's not all you know activists that are doing that. It's people on a local level caring about their local locality river. and yeah. their local river and their, their local, local beaches, and and I think I think that's the. The definite positive to take yeah, away. Yeah, because you from need it. it from every level. You need the yeah. the citizen scientists collecting yeah. data. You need the people who work within government, within politics, or within water companies to either care or realise they have to do yeah. something, otherwise their customers aren't happy. You need the activists out there making the headlines. Uh, you need just your local person who picks up three pieces of litter every time they go to the beach. All of it adds yeah. up, in the and end. you need all those little local petitions against, yeah. you know, uh, against all of these things that are going so on. The so the eel is facing but, a lot of issues, and the eel itself may not have reached public 
attention but a lot of the a lot of the things that are impacting eels are becoming real passion projects for people yes because so, all of those all that for example habitat change you know yeah. there are lots of things going on about reclaiming wetlands yeah we've and spoken about it in quite a we've few spoken episodes. about it a lot and and all of those things like, like you say it's a ripple effect that don't doesn't just affect the eel it affects the wildlife in general exactly everything and benefits and everything invertebrates the yeah. whole lot so. so it is good to see this resurgence yeah and i people yeah and and the if you haven't seen it yet and i don't know why you wouldn't have done wild isles for example has done a lot for people huge realizing how wonderful our wildlife is and how much it needs a little bit of help if you haven't watched that program about our our wild isles you have to do that it's absolutely incredible just for the just for the quality of the filming alone it's it's absolutely and although eels didn't feature the migration and barriers and stuff for salmon, salmon. are very similar and, and, and there's the some incredible and, yeah. footage of salmon um, amazing so yeah it's sort of relevant i love it don't you yeah uh, i mean we're at risk here of rambling on about we are rambling stuff. on so we will um, wrap this up i will put links to obviously our research and the variety of organizations we've mentioned from marine conservation society wildlife trust rivers trusts zoological society of london yeah. All of them. I'll stick. We'll stick all that in the show notes. Yeah, don't eat jelly eels with your pint. Will you? <laughs> One thing which we have <laughs> been very lapsed in doing because we're clearly not professional podcasters is asking <laughs> for people to give us a rating. So if you do enjoy listening to our our little random podcast chatting about wildlife, I, I don't know how it works on every podcast platform. But if you're on Spotify, you can just give a little star rating. It helps us uh, get. We've had a noticed. nice amount of downloads, but I think we've had one rating. <laughs> yeah, it was me. Um, <laughs> no, I think it was your mate Josh. Yeah, actually. I think it might have been. Um, but we're not. Which pro- is fine. We're not very good at asking for it. No. Uh, so, in proper old YouTuber sense, if you leave us a rating, it, it yeah. does help us just become a bit yes. more discoverable. But it, it doesn't that, generate us any income, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we will catch you after our holiday and hopefully have some cool wildlife to chat about from Croatia. hoping to have lots of news about bird species and wildlife in general yeah. and just because uh, i've never been to croatia so i'm so looking forward to that so thanks very much for listening as ever hopefully um, you enjoyed learning about eels yeah we we hope so and we'll catch you later bye bye bye